welcome to Spiritual Wanderlust, where we explore our interior life in search of the sacred. Many of us will travel the whole world to find ourselves, but here we'll follow those longings within to our spiritual and emotional landscapes. In each episode, we'll talk with inspiring guests, contemplative teachers, embodiment experts, neuropsychologists, and mystics. With a blend of ancient wisdom and modern science, along with a healthy dash of mischief, we'll deep dive into divine intimacy and what it means to be whole. I'm your host, Kelly Deutsch. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Spiritual Wanderlust podcast. I am your host, Kelly Deutsch, and today I have joining me a very special guest, Tessa Bilecki. Now, Tessa is a hermit, which most of you probably have never met a hermit in your life. And Tessa has a really unique background in, in her aeromedical life. Um, she, she has blended together in her life these various streams of the contemplative tradition. She's got this Carmelite stream, you know, like Teresa of Avila and John of the Cross. You've got the Celtic, but you've also got these desert mothers and fathers. And so she's lived for over 50 years in the wilderness all over in the US, Canada, Ireland, deserts, mountains, woods, all over. And she was for a long time, the mother abbess of a monastic community of both men and women for over 40 years. And then went on to create or co-create the Desert Foundation, which I'm interested to hear more about today. She's written several books, um, especially on Teresa of Avila. And Tessa is also going to be our uh, presenter on Teresa of Avila soon in the Women Mystic School. So I'm excited to hear more about that. So I'm thrilled to have Tessa with us here today. She's living her life as an urban hermit in, in Arizona today. And I'm so excited to just hear about your life, your story, and all that you have to teach us about the contemplative life. So Tessa, welcome. Thank you. Uh, that sounds fascinating. <laughs> <laughs> we'll have lots of fun. Oh, good. Well, I'm, I'm curious, Tessa, how you first discerned a call to become a hermit, because this is something that's so out of the ordinary for most people. Was it something you were thinking about, or how does that kind of life even come onto a person's radar? Yes, I think, first of all, the word is weird. You know, it conjures up strange things. You know, years ago, I actually looked it up in the dictionary. And literally, Webster's Dictionary described the hermit as somebody antisocial who grows his hair long and his fingernails long. Oh. And I just, I just really laughed at that. I, uh, I'm an accidental hermit, okay? I didn't set out to be a hermit. I didn't set out to be a monk. I didn't set out to be uh, a religious person. Uh, in my community, we actually, we women called ourselves nunks, which was a cross between a monk and a nun because we weren't exactly nunny. Mm. Um, so we needed a, we just needed a new word. And uh, that's such a huge question. Um, I think it's better to use the word solitary Hmm. because solitude is a human thing. Hermit has overlayers of, of 
meanings, a lot of which are spooky, as we see from that dictionary definition. But solitude is, is our birthright as human beings. And it's a natural and congenial uh, human experience. And that's really what being a hermit is about. I'll, co I'll come back to that more. So what what interested me above all, all my life is life itself. Hmm. I just have always wanted to live and, hmm. and live life to the hilt. And when I was in college, um, I, I had always been a dutiful Catholic, very happy Catholic. I have no horror stories to tell. Uh, I never went to public schools, uh, and I think part of the reason also I was a happy Catholic is I went to a Polish, my background is, my ethnic heritage is Polish, and I mean solid Polish. Every one of my mother's sisters married somebody Polish, every one of my father's brothers and sisters married somebody Polish, so it was a solid block, and we went to a Polish church. So my whole formation growing up, all I heard was either Latin or Polish. Hmm. And I actually think that was a significant part of my, um, my growing into the contemplative life without realizing it because my mind was being transcended all the time words were being transcended and I was experiencing the spiritual life on a, on a, on a, a much more visceral, hmm. uh, holistic level. Uh, so I, I often laugh and say, um, you know, I became, I grew more contemplatively because I didn't know what was going on so it, it, with my mind. So it, yes. was a, it was a heart thing. It was a feeling hmm. thing. And you know, Polish people uh, have very profound faith and it was so profound. A lot of the people in my church growing up had survived the horrors of World War II. And, um, and, and so there was a very powerful faith that you could almost reach out and touch uh, when I would go to church. And I was, you know, I, I couldn't have said this at the time, but as I think back on it now, I realize I was just, just absorbing all of this uh, in the depths of my whole, whole body person. So what I wanted was to really live. And I went to a Catholic college because now who knows where this came from, but all of a sudden I had never had any Catholic education except Saturday morning catechism. And I, like, where did this line come from? It, it had to have been, I think, um, and I'm gonna talk about locutions. That's the technical mystical word, you know, the Bushmen in Africa call about tapping, talk about tappings. I, I noticed in your book, which I enjoyed very much, you used the word inkling. Mm. You know, we get these signals, we get these messages. I think we're getting them all the time. Mm -hmm. And how to pay attention is what's important. Mm. But I, 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 I got this idea 
I need to go to a Catholic college to um, get the intellectual groundings of my faith. Where did a line like that come from? But there it was. So I went to a place in Washington, D.C. called Trinity College. It's now called Trinity Washington University. It's quite different from when I went. And my education was fabulous. I got this incredible theological education that was taught by the nuns. And uh, it was, I was in college from 62 to 66. So Vatican II is happening. The church is very exciting. Hmm. Wonderful things are happening. And those cutting edge nuns, Sisters of Notre Dame de Namur were teaching cutting edge theology. We're reading Karl Rahner and Hans Kung and Teilhard de Chardin and, and, um, and some of them I got to meet because they came to Washington to speak and we all went. So it was, it was just electrifying. Yeah very electrifying and in college i it was partly the the foundation that i had gotten in my family and and in my uh, parish church and then i got this intellectual grounding and then i just had this huge awakening where suddenly christ was super alive to me and I was just passionately in love and I couldn't get enough. Um, spent my time going up to Catholic University and hanging out in the cafeteria with all these seminarians uh, who studied all around CU and Trinity was right next door to it. And so we were constantly talking about these things and it, it was fabulous. Mm. And, but, but through it all, what, it was all about coming alive to me. And then we were, uh, in my junior year, we were going to have a retreat uh, as we did every year. And they said that the, uh, the retreat master, whose name was William McNamara, was uh, a hermit. And I thought, oh my gosh, that is just so irrelevant. What can he possibly have to say? And uh, I was also, I was, but I, I, of course I made the retreat because I was, I really was a goody two shoes. So I would never think about not doing it. And the minute he uh, walked out onto the altar the first night, again, it was, um, uh, it was my first, message, let me just say, a message, a revelation that I really recognized. And the message was, the, this was, I really felt God speaking to me saying, this is the man and this is your life. Wow. That was extremely powerful. And part of it was, um, first of all, he was a very dramatic, charismatic looking guy, kind of, you know, Years later then, because I hadn't read Tolkien yet, but he had a Gandalf quality about him, mm, mm -hmm. you know, uh, long brown Carmelite robes and uh, mm. just that, that, a, a magical quality. Mm. And 
he knelt down and said a prayer, uh, which I can still remember. It was, I'll just, I'll just do the first lines. Uh, oh, Jesus, enable us by means of all the things that are to grow in you. And it went on a little bit. And I was stunned by the, all the things that are. Mm. Not so-called spiritual things, not religious things, but by means of all the things that are. Mm. Let me grow in you. That just blew me away. And then he stood up and said, the title of this retreat is Christian Humanism. And that was it. It was about his, his, his breakthrough book. It's extremely out of date now, but his breakthrough book was called The Art of Being Human, which mm. came out pre-Vatican II. Nobody was talking about the, import, the fundamental uh, business of being human is how we begin. Yes. And that was my nature. That was my instinct. I, again, I couldn't have mm. talked this at the time, but he gave words to, to something that was just very, um, it was a seed in me and I recognized it. And that's what got me. It, I was interested in life and I had never, I had never met anyone as alive as he was. Mm. And the way I would put it, I even put it this way then, I think, I thought that holiness and vitality were mutually exclusive categories oh. until not only did I hear somebody bringing these two together, but embodying it. Mm. So you ask, so why did I become a hermit? Well, that, that just all grew out of the fact that I wanted to be fully alive. Mm. And I didn't, wasn't interested in religious life. I wasn't interested in monastic life. I, I couldn't, that was the farthest thing from my thought. What I wanted to do was live. And this man embodied all that vitality. So I followed him. And uh, he was in Sedona, Arizona at the time. It, he had a vision for something called the Spiritual Life Institute. It was very, um, was a beautiful vision, but it wasn't uh, manifested much until I got there. And I think there is a special something that happens between men and women. I mean, uh, for some people it's, it issues in the generativity of, of children. In other relationships, it, it's still every bit as generative, but it generates something else. So we were this terrific combo because he had mm. this vision. Mm. He had no idea how to incarnate it, mm -hmm. give it a body, which I think is what women do. Mm -hmm. And that's what I did. But it was this very organic thing. This is why it was so exciting because mm. uh, we, were, we were just creating something. Um, it, yes, it had Carmelite roots. Yes, it had roots in the desert tradition. But we were creating something new. And 
it was tremendously exciting and bit by bit, you know, people, other people came and uh, the whole Spiritual Life Institute unfolded. And by the end, we had, we had created four centers, uh, you know, in three different countries. We built, we built a contemplative center at the rate of one a decade. Uh, St. Teresa did more than that, but, uh, but a lot of it we built from scratch. I mean, we did, I mean, it was totally hands-on. We're, we're planting gardens, we're building buildings, we're, we were doing everything ourselves. And, um, and it's very on, it's very on my mind. Let me just say this and then we can come back to it because I am talking to you on um, it's just a couple of days after the 50th anniversary of our starting our place in Nova Scotia. So I'm full of memories. I've been pouring over photos. I just put, I, I decided to, to put 10 days of posts on Facebook, just showing photos and talking about the life and I'm astounded at the traffic I'm getting. I mean, because people are just so keenly interested and lots of people who had been there, whose lives had been affected by making a retreat there are responding and then perfect strangers are responding. So uh, it's, it's very on my mind uh, what, what an exciting adventure this was besides the fact that I'm 78 and it's time to be looking back and writing a memoir about all this. Uh, and the story is huge and quite wondrous and also painful. And we'll get to that as you as we proceed. Sure, yeah. I, I just wanted to highlight that um, vitality that you speak about being fully alive and fully human. I think that's something that um, so many people miss in the Christian tradition which I think is such a tragedy because um, I similarly had a very positive experience of Catholicism um, for the most part. I mean, I can share my story another time. Um, but something that I so appreciated about that kind of formation was how, how fully human and um, how it was wrapped up with everything in life, you know, from the slug outside to, you know, my lamp here, like everything is a conduit for the divine. And I love, I mean, we call that panentheism, right? Like the divine yes. in all things. But I think the Celtic tradition is great at acknowledging that. I think indigenous traditions are great at acknowledging that and really um, seeing the sacredness. So like just kind of how you said that in the past, you thought that holiness and aliveness were kind of <laughs> on opposite ends of the spectrum yeah. instead of recognizing that they're one and the same. And I, remember my, when I was in the convent in Rome, I had a spiritual director who, as I was grappling with all of this, I'm like, what does it mean to be like, you know, a celibate person? And how do I live like my sexuality? And how do I live, you know, all of these different things as a nun? He was like, Kelly, whatever is deeply human is deeply holy. And I was like, yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> no. Now see, there you have it. See, right. that's a fabulous line. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Well, see, I think Christianity we messed up pretty early on and became life denying mm. and there are ways to trace how that happened but my favorite passage from the scriptures 
from from the from the New Testament is and the only it's the only one where I know the actual resource because it's easy 1010 the reference uh, John 1010 I've come that you may have life and have it to the full how did we lose that every notice how many times in the gospel Jesus is saying life I'm the way the truth and the life I've come that you may have life I'm the bread of life it's all about life mm. and and we lost that and became so ascetical and life denying, which is why I wanted nothing to do with religious life because it repelled me. Mm -hmm. There was just, um, I really, uh, it makes no sense. So it just makes no sense. And I think what is being um, recaptured today uh, by by younger people, by the new monastic movement, in the interspiritual movement, whatever you want to call it, we can come back to that. And in the rejection of Christianity, mm. it's being rejected as life denying. Besides all the horrible crimes we've committed, um, we can come back to that too. But it's I think we're recovering this uh, because it's an instinct in everyone, and we know we know that that wasn't right. Yes, discipline is one thing. Um, um, we need our exercise, and we need to eat healthily. But we need uh, you see, Father William taught that asceticism was not punitive. We were not punishing bad bodies. Um, Oh gosh, now I'm losing what word it was. But it, but it's about enhancing life. It's for the sake of greater life. Mm -hmm. Discipline it's like training the way an athlete trains. You're you're pushing yourself in certain ways because you're training for more vitality. You're not punishing yourself because you're bad. Mm, yes. And see, I I see I never had that punishing stuff. My uh, I think there are some other ethnicities. Uh, uh, well, let me just be specific. You know, my Irish friends grew up uh, with a lot of guilt, which I did not grow up with, and a sense of punishment. And mm. um, and that wasn't Celtic. That wasn't Irish. That's French Jansenism. I was going to say that's Jansenism. <laughs> Jansenism, and I think a, what a lot of historically what people don't realize is that when the British uh, were persecuting the Irish um, and the Irish could not, um, they they sent their their candidates for priesthood over to France to be trained, and they picked up this heresy, which was body bad, life denying, dualistic split between matter and spirit. Then that comes in and infects. The Irish people and then the Irish priests come to America and so that's the kind of Catholicism that a lot of people were exposed to but I wasn't I, I gotta tell you this my dad was uh, well he was a doctor but he was the first person in his family to go to college and you know I come from just simple peasant background you know hardworking. Uh, peasant people who made their way as immigrants in the early 1900s but my so my dad was very streets grew up on the streets of Jersey City uh, uh, shooting craps actually uh, 
And, but he had this great line. And I, I was just stunned when it came out of his mouth. And he said, you know, daughter, you know what's wrong with the church in America? We got, well, you know what's wrong with the church? We got too many Italians in Rome and we got too many Irish in America. And I mean, that came out of some of his own ethnic prejudice, but wow, was that profound. Mm. And I just think that's uh, sums up a lot. Yes, that's a very so interesting. So anyway, Christ- Christianity, life affirming, life affirming. And that was what Father William represented to me. That was what Spiritual Life Institute was trying to do. And that's why people were so attracted to us. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about that. Like, what did you, what was life like at the Spiritual Life Institute? And what lessons did you learn there that you still carry with you today? Oh, uh, I carry, uh, the way I live is exactly how I used to live, which is part of what's fascinating me. That's kind of how I'm trying to uh, focus my memoir. Um, First of all, when I joined, there was nothing. We didn't even have, we didn't have a chapel. We didn't have a way of life. We hadn't even taken on the monastic form yet. Uh, it was kind of, it was all amorphous. Yeah, you were doing something so new. Oh yeah, it was all amorphous. And uh, it was bit by bit gradual. Um, um, eventually, let me cut to the chase because um, although I want to get specific about the solitude, because see, I I knew nothing about, I had no solitude. The so-called hermitage I was in was the kitchen, the dining room, the library, the office, the gathering room, uh, Mm. everything. So I I had to fight to be alone in those early years. And it Mm. it was very difficult. However, it illustrates that the this fundamental principle in the uh, Christian tradition, which is you do not move into solitude until you have first been um, formed and purified in community life. Mm-hmm. Um, and then out of that rich, generous community life, your, your life of solitude grows. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we started out, I'll come back to the whole way of life in a minute, but like we started out with one hour of solitude a day, eventually. <laughs> you know, because all we did was work. We're building, we're growing gardens, we're taking care of retreatants, we're, we're, we're just getting going here. So it started just an hour a day. Mm. And then it became an afternoon a week. And then it became a full day a week, mm. which we called a desert day. And eventually it was two weeks, um, two weeks of, no, a week of every month. Mm. And in special times like Advent and Lent, it was two weeks. So we took it on more and more. And then the retreatants who came lived the same rhythm. And that's why they came to us. People came because they were interested in being alone. And everyone lived in a separate hermitage eventually by the, you know, because we kept building more and more hermitages. So eventually our way of life was, um, was a, a, it's a, I want to say it is because I'm still living it. And this is what fascinates me. 
so we lived in, um, we start in Arizona, we outgrow that, we add a place in the woods of Nova Scotia, you know, 30 miles down a dirt road away from anything on a very beautiful lake. Uh, we have to, we end up having to leave Sedona, Arizona because it gets discovered by California, it gets all built up. We lose the silence and the solitude. We move to Colorado, then we're in the mountains. And then um, a bishop invites us to come to Ireland. It's the first time this ever happened because we were always kind of marginal and had a, a you know, um, love-hate relationship with bishops. But this bishop in Ireland uh, invited us to come. Uh, let me come back to that because I don't want to get distracted from the, um, the way of life. And it was probably, let me see, it was about 10 years in after lots of experimentation with uh, a way of life. I'm not going to call it a rule yet. It's a way of life, trial and error. It ended up becoming this beautiful balance of about 50% of our time in solitude, 50% in community. There were times for prayer, times for manual labor, emphasis on celebration and play. Mm. This is, was one of our radical contributions. You do not see this in the rule of St. Benedict. You, don't, you do not see this. Well, St. Teresa was big on recreation, but historically, celebration and play, that was part of the night life denying, no, we don't do that. Yeah. How, how, how could you not do it? You know, Jesus is risen from the dead. I mean, why aren't we singing and dancing all over the place all the time? Um, so celebration and play were very, very important. We were... We published a magazine, we wrote music, we wrote poetry, we put on skits, we wrote plays, we hmm. was tremendously creative, uh, encouraging, you know, individual talents, big emphasis on, on you know, on nature being outside, hmm. uh, doing things um, out in the wild, and of course it varied from place to place. Nova Scotia was particularly wonderful because we lived on a lake, we swam and canoed in the summer, we ice skated and cross-country skied in the winter. Um, it was, was very, very hard work, very, very hard work. Our bodies today uh, bear the scars of the hat and also very joyous, uh, very joyous. And it was the, we always believed that uh, community is really enhanced by solitude. Um, that if you're together all the time, you can really bog down and go very stale. And the solitude by, by separating, then when you come back together, you really have something to offer. So, I'm fascinated that I, I leave um, a wilderness hermitage, which I did in 2017 as I'm aging, 
partly I felt the need to be closer to healthcare. Also, I got tired of the hard work. Until I was 75, uh, I was hauling logs and stacking wood. And uh, finally I said, you know what? I think I'd like some culture. <laughs> and that was be between needing healthcare and wanting cult more, more culture, I, um, I decided to come back to Arizona, but to the city. So mm -hmm. I live in an apartment, but it is clearly an urban hermitage. I have been fascinated that I am not living very differently, except for there are there are challenges and the, the biggest one is noise. I wouldn't even say it's a challenge so much as it's just a tremendous sorrow to me how much noise there is. Mm. Um, yeah, I was gonna say, what other kinds of differences or do you see? I, I, I see just the, t the two differences really are noise and light pollution because mm. I lived so much in, the, in wilderness areas, there was no light pollution um so like i i miss stars i certain times of the year the stars are clear but not like they were uh yeah. in colorado where the milky way was just splashed across the night sky every night and and it's hard to find a place to see the full moon rise unimpeded because the rising of the full moon was always um, a ritual for me. Mm. And in most of the places where I lived, um, it was easy to see. Mm. I have to go somewhere to see it most of the year. And then it's not quiet. Where I, where I can see it isn't quiet. I hear traffic. Uh, or I see lights. So, and I'm actually, I've been here now for five years. I'm actually feeling a cumulative negative effect of um, noise and uh, not being in the dark. Uh, I, I'm not sure how to describe that. It, it's, it's definitely sorrow. Yes. Uh, there's even, I would say, a kind of a weariness yes. uh, that, co that comes with it. And I'm, I'm, of course, I've had to come to terms with, um, you know, I've gotten a little snarly uh, about how rude people are about making noise. For example, Recently, someone has just moved into this apartment complex and he got himself a garage just a few doors down from me. And he put in a set of drums. He's an old guy, probably living his dream, but he put in a set of drums. He opens the garage doors and he thinks nothing of sitting there playing his drums, loud as can be. He doesn't even think uh, what he's doing to other people all around him. Sure. So, and I get snarly, believe me. Mm -hmm. I, I, I have had to come to terms with, uh, you know, that part of myself. 
uh, where I lose patience, I get angry. I uh, raise my voice. Um, I'll complain to anybody who 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 comes <laughs> comes to. So uh, those those are um, those are the the negatives. Those are the hard things. Um, but I find, you know, prayer, uh, the solitude, the study, the discipline of writing as a spiritual practice, uh, the 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 exercise, the rhythms, mm. staying in tune with the rhythm, staying in tune with the both the rhythms of the natural seasons and the liturgical rhythms, very, very, very important. And you walk into my apartment, you know if it's Lent, you know if it's Advent, you know if it's Christmas. Uh, so um, it, apart from these negative elements, um, I, I, I feel like I'm, I'm living the way I always did and, and what's thrilling about that to me is I feel like, because what we used to do is people would come on retreat and our emphasis was, what can you learn from this experience that you can take home and you can live in your own life wherever you live, however you live it? Yes. Well, now I'm doing I have to do that same thing. And, and so I'm, but I'm seeing it from the other side and I'm valuing that and realizing, wow, you know, we, we did come up with these basic elements. Mm. And, but it, it takes creativity uh, to figure out how you're going to do it in the circumstances of your life, but it's all possible. Yeah, I was going to say that was my next question was for those who are listening, you know, most people probably live in a city or suburb or, you know, someplace where there is noise and light and just kind of all the commotion of, of modern life. And I'm curious what kinds of things you'd recommend to them to try to find that, that solitude, the silence, the stillness, um, some of those things that are such treasures in the monastic tradition, but that we, most of us aren't living a monastic life. Like, how do we find some of that? Yes. Well, of course, I'm privileged because I'm celibate and I live alone. So I don't have a spouse. I don't have children. Mm -hmm. uh, I love it that way. Uh, it's, it's a vocation and it's a joy. Um, uh, I think people have to uh, get up early in the morning mm -hmm. uh, or stay up late at night. Uh, you've got, you've got to find when is it like, and so I have to do that here. See, I mm -hmm. get up. M most people here, I, I'm up and, and it varies with the season because my, my body tends to respond to the light. Well, and also here we're like, we've just been through last week, we had 110 degree temperatures. So <laughs> You have to get up at four four o'clock in the morning. You have to be out the door five five thirty if you're going to get in a walk because you can't walk otherwise. Yeah. And my body my body adjusts to that, and mm -hmm. and I will wake up naturally. <laughs> in the winter, I will sleep till seven or seven thirty. Uh, so 
if you if you really key into the season and the light mm -hmm. and the temperature, well, I have found that works. Uh, I I don't. I don't, I no longer set an alarm. I'm old enough now. I don't, I don't have to do that. That's a luxury that comes with, with uh, age. I don't set an alarm to get up. I don't set an alarm. I, and so, and I used to get up, um, well, we're just talking about finding that space. So I think early morning, uh, late at night, uh, getting up in the middle of the night. Um, there's always traffic because I live, there's an interstate a bit of ways, but it's not quite as loud in the middle of the night. Um, certainly neighbors aren't up, um, except I do have one neighbor, <laughs> my closest neighbor, an old widow, and uh, she gambles a lot. She's, uh, she, she could be coming in at three o'clock in the morning. <laughs> Oh, uh, these are, these are, but you know, I've incorporated that. Oh, there she is, you know, and offering prayers for her. Her husband just died last December, so she's still grieving. And so, you know, I, br I can bring that in. So that would be about how to find space or you have to just get away. So, so I, there are, I can go way out into the desert here, which I will do uh, a few times a week where it's really silent, mm. um, where I'm not hearing any traffic. And if I'm lucky, I'm not hearing any people. I was out Sunday, not a soul <laughs> and utter silence. Wow. So, um, and you have to find, what is it that, what do you need? Um, uh what do you need? And then you just learn how, I think uh, you can learn how to block it out. I also, I prefer silence. I, I don't listen to music the way I used to. However, I've had to revive it here as white noise. Mm. Uh, so like when that drummer, uh, if he gets going, for one thing, so then I can't be out on my balcony. Mm -hmm. uh, I have to come inside and I often have to just turn on music to drown it out. And so I, I, I use that. Um, and, and of course, it's those times that we are the times that are also our prayer times. Mm -hmm. So, uh, but we have to find what, what is it for us? I think all of this is trial and error. I don't think any one thing works uh, for everybody. I don't, I, I, I think there is just these basic rhythms and um, people have to find their own way within them. I think um, not everybody can live out in nature. Now I am lucky Tucson is a very wild city. There's like, I can look out and I'm seeing mountains. I can see a few saguaros in the distance, which is why I'm in this apartment. I gotta see saguaros, but you can grow houseplants. Uh, you can grow things on your patio. I think growing things is, essential, is an essential part of contemplative life. Mm. 
however simply you do it, but I think it's essential. You can learn so much from a plant. I have, well, I better not get too carried away by my plants, but my plants are extremely special. I have actually had, mo I only have three because I don't have a lot of light in this apartment. That's another thing I miss. Hmm. Um, but my plants are 30 years old. Hmm. And they friends. all, they, they are friends. They all have stories. They connect me to people and places. One huge plant comes from one leaf that I picked off a roof, uh, a rooftop in Jerusalem 30 years ago. Um, so we learn plants are teachers. Mm. Like big nature out there is a teacher, but so so are simple, simple touches of nature. Yes. Uh, I think it's very important to be immersed in real things. Mm. It's very important to cook food. Mm. Uh, food is many things. Uh, food is health. Food is, uh, it's a sacred ritual. Food is art. Mm. So I, to me, food is very important. Lots of people will say to me, oh, well, I don't cook. Uh, you know, it's just myself. And I say, well, it's just myself and I cook. And because it's all these things. Mm. It's, it's, it's a major art form for me. Um, and it's sacred. Um, yes so it sounds like a lot of these things are also just a matter of being embodied you know absolutely of like getting your hands in dirt or cooking or you know in the flower or or just listening and being aware of like you said what your body needs like okay so my nervous system is really overwhelmed by you know the drummer or the traffic or you know like what do I need to do to tend to that need that I'm sensing within myself and to be aware of those, those inklings, the locutions, the, the yeah. desires and the drawings, like whatever you're feeling internally to be aware of that and really attend to that as, as kind of your, your mother superior, if you will. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I walk uh, at least six days a week for an hour. Mm. I try to swim every day. I am very fortunate. Uh, that's another plus of uh, no longer living in the wilderness. There is a luscious pool here and I'm a big swimmer. Swimming is a very important part of my life. I, um, both walking and swimming, I'm doing the Jesus prayer as hmm. I'm doing it. One of the most important penances I was ever given after confession as a as a, a young person in Nova Scotia, Father Williams said, "Okay, now when you do your your floor exercises, you do them to the Jesus Prayer." I started doing that sometime in the late seventies. I have been doing it ever since, mm. and that is a is a very important part of my life. So I go swimming. I'm, 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 I'm doing these strokes. The Jesus prayer is going on. 
my body is moving, my body is stretching, my mind is emptying because it's just the Jesus prayer. And I usually, just because of some back problems, I can only do the backstroke. So I'm spending most of my time looking at the sky, mm. looking at clouds. That's lovely. And saying the Jesus prayer. And and now now see, if I get all riled up about noise or whatever, what's going on in the world, I'll go for a swim. Mm. It's a, it's a, it's a, an embodied way to to calm down. Being in the body is it, it, it's mm. just so important. It really just, is. And that rhythmic, so I, I love that. I mean, whether it's swimming or you mentioned before, like that combination of labor and prayer, the aura, labora, yes. like there's something so helpful. Like I, I have to do that as well. Like I, to be able, especially when I spend so much time in my interior world or with other people in their interior world, I have to do something with my hands where I can just let yes. my mind be free, whether it's painting or yard work or whatever it is, something that's exactly. more embodied yeah. and is less heart and head focused. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I see, and I think Jesus, that that's part of the witness of the gospel too. I mean, Jesus was walking everywhere mm -hmm. um, for one thing mm -hmm. and camping out and, um, so yeah, the body's yeah. very, and again, I think that's, that's, uh, that's a big part of what women bring to all of this. I, I think that's also what has, what happened to Christianity. It became too masculine. It became too mm. removed from, from women specifically and from the feminine. And so it became disembodied too rational mm. uh, and too negative. Uh, you know, women nurture, uh, women bring life, um, mm. men kill. Uh, <laughs> uh, so, so we just have like a handful of minutes left and I'm, I'd love to hear, I know you're going to be speaking and sharing a class on, on Teresa of Avila and yes. I, I'm, as we've spent these past several months in this women mystic school and learning just as you've been sharing here about the gifts that women bring this feminine spirit that's creative and life-giving and embodied i'm curious what what you would name as teresa of avila's particular genius because i think a lot of us have heard of her but sometimes she remains a little out of reach because her interior castle and all her writings seem either um you know long in the distant past where the language doesn't make sense to us or maybe it feels too advanced spiritually and so somehow um this woman who is so fiercely alive i think uh gets lost and you know kind of gets set as a marble statue in an alcove somewhere instead of being fiercely alive so what kind of feminine gifts or genius does teresa bring us okay and i uh of course i'm i'm so excited to talk about her. Teresa's really my best friend. I feel closer to her than I do really to, to, to any woman I've ever met. Mm. And I, not everybody has the same take on her that I do. Um, the reason I love her is her vitality. Mm. Um, but you have to, I, I don't think she's easy to read. 
And when I do my class, I actually wanna talk about the three books I've written about her and why I wrote them and what each one has to offer that makes Teresa accessible to people. Because you can't just pick up Teresa of Avila. You don't get a big enough picture. And I read every word she ever wrote. Uh, and because I'm this, uh, well, I'm a J on the Myers-Briggs and, I, and I'm, I think I'm a one on the Enneagram and I love structure and I love organizing and I love synthesizing. I read every word and I recategorized it uh, on my terms and then uh, put it all out in a, in a new form. Mm. And my big emphasis is on her vitality, first mm. of all. She also, she, she's a tremendous teacher, but see, she's so, and this is part of what I both, I love about her. She gets so excited, she's all over the place. And when you read her, she will even, she even digresses and goes off on something else. And then she ends up writing, oh, now where was I? And then she comes back, but it's like five chapters later to where she was. So she's hard to read. I remember the first time I read her, my big line was, wow, does she need an editor? <laughs> and, but the fact that she's so unedited is why I love her. Mm. And, and so like in her autobiography, she's unedited. And I think it's so well worth, if you read The Interior Castle, by then she's really got it together and she synthesized it into this beautiful treatise. But, and that, yes, it's beautiful, but I love kind of the wild unleashed mm. woman that you read in, in, in her life. Mm -hmm. So what I love is the vitality, but she's a tremendous teacher about prayer. Mm -hmm. And when I do the class, we'll, we'll zero in on just one particular, well, one aspect. But the then, the, I guess the third thing I want to say related to the prayer is she's what we call a bridal mystic or a spousal mystic. So she adds this remarkable dimension to prayer, which is... Uh, God is not, and I'm going to use God language with, uh, you know, some apologies and caveats, but I, I, that's my language. Mm -hmm. So God can be sure God, Lord, uh, brother, but see for Teresa, there is a, a quantum leap in intimacy yes. and God is spouse. Now that's the heart of my kind of prayer. Mm -hmm. um, and she's masterful in this. She not only embodies it, but she talks about what it is. It's kind of off the charts for some people, uh, embarrassing for some people, uh, very, very juicy, a uh, very passionate language. She yes. talks about she talks about madness going mad with love and yes. um uh that's me I, I i love it and that's why that's why i love her like i i read her and i felt like i was i recognized i recognized myself 
Mm-hmm. And that's partly why I fell in love with her. It's like, oh my gosh. Uh, and again, she also gave me a language. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think she's just the greatest. Um, yes. I think she's the greatest. And I'm happy to be able to do this because I haven't, you know, I haven't talked about her in a while. And uh, then I start to think about her again and, and I just get all excited about her all over again because she's just dynamite. And she's definitely, you know, a woman for our times. I mean, she was a very powerful woman at a, <laughs> the least likely time. Yes. Uh, I mean, the King of Spain knew her name and, and here she's this little nun. Uh, so she, she was something. Yes, I have so enjoyed being able to just really dive into each of these female mystics as we've been going along. Yeah. You know, I mean, like last month we were doing the Beguines and I was like, oh my gosh, they're just so freaking amazing. You know how, yes, how yes. talk about passion. Yes. Oh my gosh. You know, we had Julian of Norwich and we had Dorothy Day and I mean, we just, or, or Eddie Hillisum. Oh my God. Just each one as, as I'm preparing for them, I'm writing about them. I'm sitting with their writings, just seeing the, the, the vitality, like you say, the, the audacity with which yes. they spoke so many times, yes. you know, when it was just such a intensely patriarchal society that they lived yep. in and they just had this, yep. like, I mean, my goodness, the chutzpah, you know, yeah. to be yeah. able to. Absolutely. Yeah. You chose some beauties. I mean, the, 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 you know, congratulations again on that women's mystic school and the, and your choices are, are terrific. Yes, thank you. I'm very excited and I'm so looking forward to hearing more about Teresa because she's such a, um, she's so good. And as, as you say, she can be very accessible, but I think a lot of people miss that. So yeah. um, I, I love the way that you embody her vitality and there's so many parallels between your life and hers as being yes. like foundress and yes. just so many pieces. Um, yeah. Yeah, that yeah, she I, she helped me a lot with that too because I I I didn't yeah be, you know they used to call her la madre fundadora you know the mother foundress and that really helped me because I was doing that too but I I didn't until I got to know her I didn't have a model for that mm. and she really helped including how hard it was how overwhelmed you could feel she was always overwhelmed yes. Uh, is partly why I loved her. Uh, she was just, she was just always overwhelmed and she didn't all, she, on the one hand, she had a lot of help and a lot of support. And on the other hand, she didn't. So she was often very alone and, and she suffered a lot um, from loneliness. Mm. And that's partly what's so endearing about it. It's not just the vitality. It's all the human emotion. She was often frightened and scared and depressed and lonely and um and she says all that yes uh she says all that and more so in her letters than the formal writings which is why it's just so great to read letters but most people don't do that Um, right but i yeah i i think you're right that those human emotions make make the mystics make Teresa so much more relatable yes, that she's not absolutely. this like marble statue somewhere like she was a living breathing and fairly hot-blooded Spaniard oh yeah you know who, who had a lot yeah. of 
um, passion and struggles and things that that anyone can relate to. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. So we'll have fun with Teresa. <laughs> yes, I'm very much looking forward to it. Um, if people want to learn more about your books, about your Desert Foundation, and all, everything that you're up to, where should people go? Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, we didn't even talk about Desert Foundation, but I uh, have, uh, with my friend, uh, Father Dave Denny, started something when I left Monastic Life. We started something called the Desert Foundation. Our website is sandandsky.org. Easy to remember, because what do you see when you look out in the desert? Sandandsky.org. We're re- designing the website we don't it's very boxy right now we have something spectacularly beautiful uh and artistic uh in the works at this moment and uh, so pay attention um don't give up but you'll and i eventually i'm i'm trying to do my i don't have my own website but eventually there will be tessabalecki.com so but i hope by the end of the year but i can't be sure and can people learn about your books on Teresa also at books. that website? Yes, absolutely. Okay, all, the Teresa, all the Teresa books are there. Yeah. Okay. And Marvelous. we'll and and listen to the women mystics and we'll talk more about that. Yes, yes. If you want to join us for the class on Teresa, just check us out at womenmystics.org and we would love to have you join us for the journey that we have coming up. Well, Tessa, this has been delightful. I'm, I'm looking forward to having your, your confrere, Father Dave, also on here to talk some about the Desert Foundation yes. because there are so many yes. things that I wanted to talk about and yes. so much time. Well, life is rich. Indeed it is. I am so thankful to hear about your story and your life as a hermit, as a contemplative, how we can also live some of this contemplative and even monastic quality in our daily life and uh, find some of this aliveness that that you embody so well so thank you for sharing that with us today thank you kelly yeah absolutely and thank you everyone for listening